Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. There once was a man from Nantucket whose pipe was so long he had to... Now I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, it's sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine, coming to you on a summer evening in lovely Concord, North Carolina. Well, not so lovely. It's hot. Anyway, on uh, tonight's show, we're going to talk about Parker Pipes. And then my guest, we're going up north of the border up to Canada for Cody Perkins, pipe maker, and a whole bunch of other stuff going on there. Uh, Instead of music, got an entertainment piece that was uh, sent to me by Rick Newcomb. So it's kind of fun. It has to do with Bertram Russell. Uh, So it's automatically fun. Uh, Mailbag rant, all that coming up in tonight's episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. And remember, you must be of legal smoking age in order to even listen to this show that talks about the wonderful, evil weed of tobacco that we all love so much. Uh, So you must be of legal age wherever you are in order to enjoy this show. Uh, If you haven't had a chance, please, we would appreciate a rating and a review on iTunes. That does help us out. So check that out. Or... uh, rating or review on Stitcher would also be wonderful. Or any place else where uh, pod stuff is from. So, alright, so summer's uh, fully engulfed in uh, in the Carolinas here, so that means that it's uh, bug season. And along with bug season this past week, the first arrival of a tree frog, or as I call them, pooping frogs, on our front porch, and I figured out so I figured it out. Uh, this one that came this year is about uh, maybe about an inch and a half, two inches long. Much bigger than what we're used to having. So I figured that he is a, re- a return visitor from a previous year and has gotten much bigger. And he came back to eat all of our moths and all the bugs that hang out on our front porch. Which, if he ate them all, he'd be the size of a garage. So hopefully he eats up a lot. All right. Let's get the show rolling. Everybody sit back. Fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you to the Sutliff Tobacco Company. And here we go. Meet Josh. Everyone at SmokingPipes.com holds customers as a high priority, but nobody interacts with them more personally than Josh. He's our professor of pipes, if you will. As a previous professor of history... Educating the customer comes easily to him. He loves explaining the history of a particular pipe to a customer or coaching his customer service team. I love to help customers find that perfect piece for their collection. It's my job to make sure there's a smile on the other end of the line, and I'm more than happy to be the one to put it there. And although Josh's job can sometimes be quite demanding, he doesn't mind. He loves his job at SmokingPipes.com. Why? Because I don't just sell pipes. I smoke them. Call us at 1-888-366-0345. That's 1-888-366-0345. Or check us out online at smokingpipes.com. We are quality. We are experts. We are smokingpipes.com. 
We are back, and uh, tonight's uh, Pipe Parts is dedicated to Mike Reschke. Mike is the uh, president of the Chicagoland Pipe Club, the club itself, and uh, is currently uh, experiencing some health issues that are uh, towards the end of his life. And uh, Mike was the uh, Parker expert. If I had a Parker question, I went to Mike. So, Mike, this one's for you. Uh, the Par- the Parker Pipe Company. Parker Pipe Company. Let me try that again. There we go. Reading from Pipedia.org. Uh, in 1922, the Parker Pipe Company Limited was formed by Alfred Dunhill to finish and market what Dunhill called its failings, or what has come to be called as by collectors as seconds. Previous to that time, Dunhill marketed its own failings, often designated by a large X, over the typical Dunhill stamping or damaged price with the reduced price actually stamped on the pipe. While the timing and exact nature of the early relationship remains a bit of a mystery, Parker was destined to eventually merge with Hardcastle when in 1935 Dunhill opened a new pipe factory next door to Hardcastle and purchased 49% of the company's shares in 1936. In 1946, the remaining shares of Hardcastle were obtained, but it was not until 1967 when Parker Hardcastle Limited was formed. It's evident through the Dunhill factory stamp logs that Parker and Dunhill were closely linked at the factory level through the 1950s. Yet it was much more than a few minor flaws that distinguishing the uh, two brands. Most Dunhill failings would have been graded out after the bowl-turning process exposed unacceptable flaws. This was prior to stoving, curing, carving, bitwork, and finishing. In other words, very few Parkers would be subjected to the same rigorous process and care as pipes destined to become Dunhills. Only those that somehow made it to the end-finishing process before becoming failings enjoy significant Dunhill characteristics, and this likely represents very few Parkers. After the war, and especially after the mid-1950s, the differences between Parker and Dunhill became even more evident, and with the merger of Parker with Hardcastle Pipes Limited in 1967, the Parker pipe must be considered as an independent product. There is no record of Parker ever being marketed by Dunhill either in its retail catalogs or stores, except for what I'm about to tell you in a little bit. Uh, Parker was a successful pipe in the U.S. market during the 1930s up to the 1950s, at which point it faded from view in the U.S. while continuing to be popular in the U.K., It was reintroduced into the U.S. market in 1991 and is sold in Europe. Uh, When you want to, when when you're looking at an estate Parker pipe on the market, and you want to look at the dating, it says prior to World War II, the possessive Parkers, P-A-R-K-E-R apostrophe S stamp was used. However, at least some pipes were stamped with the non-possessive as early as 1936. Uh, Like Dunhill, Parker pipes are date-stamped, but differently than Dunhill. The Parker date code always followed the Made in London over England stamping. Uh, The first year's pipes, 1923, had no date code. From 1924 on, it ran consecutively from 1 to 19. 
There is no indication of a date code for the war years. Parker was not a government-approved pipe manufacturer while Dunhill and Hardcastle were. During the war years, Parker manufactured the 1-Up pipe made of Bakelite and clay. A Parker pipe with a 19-date code has been reported indicating there was perhaps some production of briar pipes as well, but no dating record. Uh, from 1945 to 1949, the Parker date code runs from 20 to 24, and then from 50 to through 57, it runs from an underline and raised zero to an underline and raised seven. Uh, that's about all the information on Parker's, except by 1967, it kind of gets homogenized in. Uh, there is a 1969 RTDA almanac that shows Parker pipes under the Alfred Dunhill of London importer in New York, New York. Uh, for a ballpark idea, a tan shell or a, a Dunhill shell pipe was $22.50 to $35. The same Parker would have been $13.50 to $15. And when you're looking at the older Parkers, uh, in 1955 on uh, PipePages.com, there's a Parker catalog that shows their new offices and showroom in Beacon House on Holland Park Avenue in London. Uh, in that catalog, it shows their three grades of pipe. The Super Briere, which is kind of that Dunhill Briere color. The Briar Bark, which is a sandblast, and the Russet. Um, it says not only has the Russet received the same Parker bowl seasoning process, but it also has been specially finished in an attractive Russet shade and is the automatic choice of the smoker who appreciates a rich grain shown to full advantage. Uh, the other thing that uh, made Parker a little different than uh, Dunhill was this. The Parker Guarantee. The bowl of every Parker pipe is guaranteed not to burn or crack within six months with fair use. Once a bowl has been exchanged, it cannot be replaced a second time. The guarantee does not apply to the stem or vulcanite snapping or splitting, such breaks being due to accidental damage. <laughs> Uh, and it does talk about the uh, fitted with the hygienic aluminum tube. It is popular with all types of smokers. So there's a little history on pipe on uh, Parker pipes. And again, if you want to read more, go to pipepedia.org or pipepages.com. And in just a minute, Cody Perkins will be on the phone with me. This is Internet Radio. Craftsmanship, history, tradition. These are the hallmarks of all quality products. From the finest wines bottled in France to the most highly engineered automobiles manufactured in Germany, Denmark has been the one country in the world where craftsmanship, history and tradition have for centuries created the finest pipe tobaccos in the world. Since 1887, the Halberg family have led the pipe tobacco industry through their ownership of Mac Baron Tobacco Company and they continue to create the most sought-after blends in the world today, just as they did over 100 years ago. 
In keeping with their long history of providing the world with the best tobacco on earth, Mac Barron is proud to announce their newest creation, Modern Virginia, as a loose cut version and a flake version. Bright and dark, rich Virginia tobaccos have been combined with just a hint of burley for strength in this soft and smooth smoke with delicious fruit undertones. As the world leader in flake tobacco production, Mac Barron is sure that this blend will appeal to the true connoisseurs of traditional Virginia flake tobacco, as well as those who like their tobaccos on the sweeter side. Enjoy the culmination of centuries of experience by picking up a tin of modern Virginia from Mac Barron Tobacco Company. Available at fine tobacconists everywhere. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show, and we're going north of the border for tonight's guest. So we're going to Cody Perkins of True North Briars, and uh, Cody's up there almost near the uh, almost near the North Pole, but we'll we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, Cody, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me. All right. So, in all fairness, you are not near the North Pole. You're actually in uh, Edmonton. Yes, correct. A little ways away from the North Pole, but yeah, at least two reindeer rides away. <laughs> yeah. All right. So tell us where did you uh, where did you grow up and when did you get started smoking a pipe? Uh, I grew up in a small city on the border of Alberta and Saskatchewan. It's actually about two and a half hours away from Edmonton, where I am now. Um, I, I grew up on a farm south south of Lloydminster, actually. And I got exposed to pipe smoking through a friend of mine, Aaron. Um, I knew him growing up through high school. Um, he was pretty big into pipes and cigars, primarily uh, pipes. And we just kind of formed a small smoking group and started smoking a pipe at that point. Um, it would have been in, I guess, 2004 would have been when I first was exposed to it and started smoking a pipe at that point. So when you were out there, did you have, like, was there a tobacco shop in the town, or uh, how did you go about getting pipes and pipe tobacco? Um, no, there wasn't. There wasn't a pipe tobacco shop um, in, in Lloydminster at all. We would actually, the, the main one that we would go to, either order online if, if we were able to, but primarily would come to Edmonton, and there's a shop here. Um, it's named Burlington's. It's on White Ave, one of the, I guess, the popular streets in the city they got a bunch of little shops down there and whatnot uh owned by chris henson and uh yeah chris is i know we were speaking in chicago and you actually know chris as well so yeah i would go into his shop and buy all his local stuff up so get it from him and actually chris has been a huge help for me even with my own pipe pipe world i guess carrying my things and kind of promoting me as i went along so and as far as uh pipes i was actually the the first pipe i ever had was one that i actually made myself um, I remember looking through Aaron's pipes all the time and kind of picking them apart and just looking at them and seeing how they're built. And, uh, like, I'm a machinist by trade, so working with my hands and whatnot is not foreign to me. So I remember looking at his pipes and decided I was going to make a pipe, so that's kind of where I got into it. So my first pipe was actually one I built myself. And then I just began began building pipes and selling them and whatnot to, to guys within the pipe group that we had. And I mean, the first pipe. Did you uh, did you go online to get some tips, and or I guess you had help locally that was were kind of guiding you. Um, not so much any help. Not so much any help locally, because at the time I didn't even I didn't really know Chris or any of the guys at Burlington's uh, around Lloydminster. There really wasn't anything. Um, I went on to at the time uh, it was the Pimo Pipecraft um, website. I guess it's it's now owned 
by uh, by Vermont Freehand, but at the time it was the PIMO standalone thing. So I remember I bought, uh, like most pipe makers started out, I bought the PIMO Pipecraft uh, little manual or it, it kind of explained how to make a pipe and whatnot. So I bought that at the time and bought some, some briar and some preformed stems is what I started with. And I just kind of wung it, <laughs> just kind of figured it out. Um, like that was back in that was in 2004, so I couldn't really find much on on the internet at the time as far as pipe craft or anything like that, other than just looking at pipes and being inspired that I wanted to make one. So I uh, I made a couple dozen back then, and I just kind of it just kind of fizzled out. I didn't really keep with it. It was a fun hobby at the time, but it just I didn't know there's the exposure really that that there is now with the social media scene. So I I made pipes for probably 2004, 2005, just as kind of a little hobby, not really knowing there's much involved with it. And then outside of that, um, my wife actually introduced me to Instagram. Um, this was I guess <laughs> 2012, 2013, and just getting exposed to that, it, it opened up all these doors. I was like, wow, there's actually artisan pipe makers out here. There's people that are. They're picking up the hobby and doing it, and they're actually selling it and supporting themselves in the hobby of doing it. So that's kind of what gave me the big push. I remember I first discovered, I think it was Grant Batson's work, and I was just blown away. I couldn't believe the work that he was doing and, like, the shapes he had. Like, to me, it was no longer a pipe. It was, like, a piece of work with that had holes in it to functioning smoking device, right? So um, I was pretty inspired by that, and then just going through Instagram, it, it really inspired me, and then... From there, I, I started getting back into it, and then I guess 2013 is the year that kind of marked me starting to make pipes again. So. Now, what were you doing as a as a machinist? Um, well, I started I started in the machining trade when I was in high school. Um, younger than that, I guess, like my interest for machining came from uh, my father was a hobbyist knife maker. So growing up, I was always kind of playing around in the shop and on the farm and making knives and stuff. We used to have guided hunters that would come up, like primary goose hunters, and I remember selling some knives to them and whatnot. Again, kind of like my interest in working with my hands and working with steel. And from there, when I was introduced to machining, I thought it was quite interesting because you can essentially make anything that, that you can dream up, right? So I uh, was exposed to machining in high school. They had actually a pretty good comprehensive uh, high school that I went to, so it offered a lot of different trades. And I discovered machining there. And as soon as as soon as I took my first industrial arts class with machining, I just fell in love with it. I, I loved the ability to kind of dream up whatever you want and craft it. So from there, I uh, like as soon as I was introduced to it, I found a part-time job at a machine shop, a local machine shop, and continued with that and got my trade and continued to work in it. So back then, a lot of it was uh, oil and gas and farming implementation and and things like that, hydraulic work and things like that. And then as I progressed in my trade, like my last, uh, I worked at a shop that did a lot of oil and gas work, but we also worked um, on like steam turbines and like you name it really, right? Rotating equipment and construction industry to forestry to, to all over the map. So I was uh, I was there for, for about four and a half years. I was the shop foreman there for the last two and then there was a restructure within within the company, so I was one of the guys laid off. Um, I don't know if you're aware or not, but in Alberta right now, well, the whole oil and gas industry is pretty much uh, floundering right now. So yeah. there's a lot of people in, that are machinists right now in Alberta and in Canada. The unemployment rates for it is ridiculously high. So with that, at around the same time when I, when I was laid off, I started my own company, actually. 
also I do uh, field machining, so it's like on-site machining. So I do a lot of uh, subcontracting out through companies and prime contracting, doing uh, like portable machining. So that's kind of where I'm at right now with the machining side of things. But what's the uh, craziest thing you've made? Um, the craziest thing I've made, time-wise or just interesting-wise? <laughs> just um, I guess one of the things I. I started making uh, ashtrays, actually. That was that was an interesting, fun kind of thing I was doing for a while. I was doing a bunch of ashtray work. If you actually go on our True North Briar um, website, I have some of my previous metal work up on there. And I had some, but it's, it's sold out now. And it was probably some of the funnest stuff I've ever worked on just because of something that I created and it's, like, aesthetically pleasing. It was just interesting to, like, work different geometries and things like that. And, like, for myself, I'm not uh, a CNC uh, machinist. I'm a total conventional like manual machinist, so everything's kind of done with your hands and with the machine. So there's a lot of things within that that bring different curveballs. So there's there's different aspects to machining when you're doing it manually that you don't have in the CNC world. So it's kind of interesting to problem solve how you're going to do them and whatnot. And other things too that have been very interesting are even within pipe making, like um, designing and making my own tools to, I guess, speed up certain processes or make things a lot easier and just just Basically, the funnest thing to me is um, from concept to uh, all the way through and then being able to make something with it. To me, that's the funnest thing, just designing, building, and then being able to use it. So you're able to make your own pipe-making tools, and I would assume that the uh, that the skills from the machine shop kind of run over into shaping pipes and making stems and all that stuff. Yeah, 100%. Like, for me to make my first pipe, um, I found, because I worked in a machine shop, right, so I was, I was exposed to metal lathes all the time, so was, I didn't know what people were really using to make pipes. I just thought, you know, well, I can put this in a lathe and I can do this work. And then having um, my father, when he was doing the knife work, he was no longer making knives, so I was able to get a lot of his equipment, like buffing stations, shaping wheels, things like that, to really felt sanders to kind of fast-track me along. So it's really aided me, and I know with... Uh, just the tooling aspect, like knowing how to properly um, grind and form like geometries on a, on a tool so it cuts properly, or even on my lathe, like I've designed a, a spindle lock for it and holders for doing um, essentially live tooling in my little lathe. So I can do a lot of, uh, I guess, milling aspects in, in something that's designed not to be used for milling. So it's been, been pretty neat to make different things to really allow me to do, do other, other things that normally I couldn't do. Um, like right now, I'm currently designing a new a new uh, briar chuck that I'm I'm doing. Um, I previously did uh, a new spin on spoon bits. They're kind of a, a titanium nitride coated spoon bit with some different uh, ge geometries on it to kind of allow it to cut a little bit better, make it so it doesn't really grab and rip a block out of your hand, but also cut and hold its edge. So, but and those like those spoon bits I sell as well through our True North Briar website. And once I get my uh, briar chucks all figured out 100%, I'll be probably selling those as well. But it just for myself, I find it's uh, it's fun to bring the aspect of metalwork and machining into the pipe world and kind of share that with other people that maybe don't have that that same background. So it that's one of the things I really do like about pipe making as well. You see all these different people with different different backgrounds, and they're they're bringing different aspects into it from from all different all different sources. So it's, it's pretty cool to see how that influences style and just the way people manufacture their products. And with your machining background, you already had the, uh, the the skills to hit the tolerances because some of the work you were doing 
before, I mean, you had to be exact to the thousandth of a millimeter. Yeah, 100%. Like, with, with me, it's a funny thing I always debate with my friend Hector. I, you might know him. The, he does the radiator pipe. He's all about the metric system, whereas I'm imperial and so used to dealing with inches, right? So, but um, for me, exactly, like, I'm used to working within, like, a thousandth of an inch to five-tenths. Um, so to put that in perspective, like a piece of paper or a human hair, for example, is about two to three thou. So <laughs> when you're talking about, like, five-tenths, that's like cutting a human hair in six segments, right? So... Um, hitting tight tolerances and stuff is nothing foreign. Like that's one of the things I do like about pipe making in the sense that you can pretty much let your mind run away with you and do whatever you want with it. And for me, the 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 engineering and the tolerance and stuff were never a problem. Like I know right out of the gate, I kind of had that nailed down. The biggest thing that I find and still do find is just finding your own, I guess, your style and your own balance, and just kind of like having that grace and elegance to to your pieces and. That, that's to me is the biggest thing as far as hitting sizes and tolerances and engineering it, it it's it's just muscle memory at this point it's, i don't have to think about that <laughs> it's just finding your balance and your flow we're going to take a break right here when we come back we'll talk about uh shaping and pipe making and uh, a lot more coming up with cody so stay with us we'll be back in just a minute what are you looking for in a pipe is it the quality of aged briar? Is it a certain shape or finish? Maybe it's the sound engineering that ensures an effortless, smooth draw with each and every puff. That's exactly the kind of pipe Savinelli has delivered for generations now. With such a variety of shapes, finishes, and sizes, it's easy to find something that fits your sensibility and style. Just this year, we've expanded our lineup to include the Bianca, the Lancelotto, the 2015 Collection, and the final installment in the Leonardo da Vinci line, the Vitruvio. For a bolder style, try our more colorful 2015 editions as well. The exotic cashmere, the sultry licoricea, and the striking archipelago red. So whatever you're looking for in a pipe, know there's a Savinelli waiting for you. Contact your local or online retailer to find your Savinelli today. I wish I had a genie who could make it easy to order pipes and tobaccos online. You don't need a genie, sir. Visit fournoggins.com. They stock all your favorite pipes and tobaccos, and every order gets fast personal attention. Orders are packed carefully and shipped quickly by priority mail. Fournoggins.com. Fournoggins.com. I can still see you, you know. A bit rusty, sir. Fournoggins.com. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show visiting with Cody of True North Briar. And uh, you mentioned goose hunting. If you want to go Canadian geese hunting, all you have to do is come down here to the Carolinas and drive around the mall parking lots. They're all over the place. Uh, so let, let's talk about pipe making for a minute here. Was there a shape at the beginning that was hard for you to hard for you to get or hard for you to figure out how to make it? Um, I'd say at first because I was kind of primarily I'd say I just was self-taught. I kind of just figured it out for myself as I went. And I think the like not getting into like blowfish or something like crazy like that, but just sticking to more of a traditional shape was like this, the two stage drill. Like you see, if you see in a really sharp, sharp bend, right, it's not just straight bent or if you straight bend it, it just, the flow and it 
pipe looks crappy. But as far as like finding that like two stage drilling so it flows right, it, it took me a while to kind of figure out like why you would do it in a certain way and then have it so that you can actually pass a pipe cleaner um, perfectly every time. And once I just kind of looked at it, kind of stepped back and just looked at the angles and stuff, it made a lot more sense. And I'd say one of the biggest advancements that I found with working was between actually like with using the lathe, not just freehand shaping, but was the difference between a regular chuck and actually getting a quality briar chuck. It made things night and day. <laughs> What I mean, what what exactly is the difference between a regular chuck and a and a good briar chuck? Well, a lot of people it, it depends on your clamping on your pipe, right? If if you're if you're turning it in your machine, what I was doing before was I just have like a four jaw with a little like inch and a half on it, and try and grab on a piece of wood and and do it that way, and it, it was a complete nightmare. And not only was it difficult, it was dangerous, right? You're not properly holding onto your workpiece, and you can take that thing off your forehead. So <laughs> it, it was kind of sketchy to say the least. And I had uh, rigged up a few different setups where I had, like, high-speed steel blank, like, basically uh, bars that I was clamping on on top of that to try to hold it for, say, like, uh, Umpal is doing or something. And it was just, I just took a step back. I'm like, this is dangerous. I need to find a better option than this. And our trucks were being done at the time, but I didn't, like, mo like I say, most of my stuff is just kind of pre-taught. So I was like, well, I could just basically have longer false jaws that come out and I can clamp on this. So basically what I did at the time was I took a four-jaw chuck, like, just to dumb it down a bit. Like, your chuck is what goes in your lathe, and that's where you're going to clamp your block in. So I took a chuck that normally has four jaws that operate independently, and I removed two of those so that I had two left that are basically just across from one another. And then I took some um, some plate steel and just cut, cut them out so that instead of having uh, a jaw that's only hanging out about an inch, inch and a half, it, it now hangs out like four to five inches, right? So you have a lot more material that you can now have as your jaw that's going to hold your your wood block and then the beauty like not only is that that helpful but the beauty of the briar chuck is you put alignment pins through it so what the pins do is the spot that you're going to pivot on your pipe from where your your chamber is going to be drilled and then where your airway is going to be drilled you can pivot the, the block on that point so when you're doing your lathe you can line up you can drill your drill your chamber or what, however you like to do it. I, I personally do my chamber first, but drill your chamber, and then you can loosen your chuck, just one of your jaws, so it's not going to change your alignment, and then pivot your pivot your um, your stumble or your block on those on those um, two points. So it kind of gives you a pivot point, and then you can clamp back down, and you don't have to worry about being misaligned. It's uh, on the same because you're having that point you're pivoting on. You know your drill points can end up in the same area. It's just a matter of making sure you don't drill too deep. But also coming from like the the machining aspect, like I run dials and everything on everything, so my all my depths and everything are pretty much 100% every time because I know how deep they need to go. Like I'll, I'll zero all my tools and go to a certain depth. So just just having that, being able to properly hold the wood and being able to properly pivot it so that you're I guess bang on all the time made a huge difference as far as making sure it's properly aligned and like the safety and just. That, that, to me, was the biggest thing, going from uh, an improper um, work-holding device to something that could probably hold the piece. This is like a master class, and one of the things that just, uh, you know, continues to amaze me about doing this show is that every time I talk to a pipe maker, there's a different aspect that the, that, that we're able to get into. And, man, just it, you think about just how exacting of a science it really is just to put a block of wood into a machine and have it come out looking decent 
Yeah, well, that, that's only a, a small portion of it. If, if if that's all it was, my pipes would probably look a lot nicer than they do. <laughs> there, there's so much, there, there's so much to it. it it's really eye-opening, especially like for, when we're in the Chicago show. They're just talking to some of the fellow makers. It's just the beautiful work people are putting out. It, it's very interesting to see the different techniques and different things people are doing. Because at the end of the day, as long as the, the mechanics are proper, your engineering is going to smoke properly, and your your airline everything's lined up properly. Um, outside of that, it's, it's a lot of just aesthetics. And, like, obviously you can get into, like, the thickness and the quality of the briar and whatnot. But at the end of the day, it's it's really how you want to build the thing. So it's, it's really interesting to, to see how people do their pipes. And even people I've kind of helped out, like, not that I'm an expert pipe maker or anything, but I kind of have – I know what works for me. And even helping other people and showing other people what I do, it's kind of interesting to see what they take away and what they bring from their own side because – Pipe making is it's not an exact science. It, it's not something that's like this is the right way and this is the wrong way for the most part. It's it's so individualized. So I find that's one of the things that's really neat about it. And it's a very niche uh, niche hobby or a niche industry. So when you see what people have made for their tooling, it's very interesting to see because there's all kinds of tooling that people have just dreamt up, purpose built, and found these things that are able to to work for them. So that's one of the things I really find interesting about it as well, more than just the the pipe itself, but the the craft that goes into building it. Yeah, and then we pipe smokers figure out a way that we like to pack the pipe specifically. And, uh, you know, there's only about a um, hundred different correct ways to do that. <laughs> exactly. Multiple ways to skin a cat, right? Yeah. Uh, how did uh, the website is truenorthbriar.com. How did the website come about? Um, basically, how it came about is uh, in Edmonton here. Uh, I made a friend, Ian Barnes. He's uh, also a pipe maker. Um, his is his. I guess if we want to talk Instagram accounts or whatever, he's IB Pipes. It's his. And we, uh, I guess, we kind of found out that one another existed through Instagram even. Like, it came across that we were both in Edmonton. He was a, a pipe smoker. I was a very novice pipe maker. So he, he contacted me and wanted to get together and reshape a pipe he had and just kind of see what it was about, right? So I had him over, and uh, he found pipe making to be really interesting and wanted to make one himself. So I offered to give him a hand if he wanted to, he wanted to pursue it. And from there, he kind of slowly built his own shop and ended up becoming a pipe maker as well. So with the two of us, like we were selling through different retailers and, and things like that. And we just looking more and more and we found there really wasn't anything in Canada, right? As far as Canada, we couldn't find much. There was the odd place, but really, really infrequent. So like, well, look, maybe we should look into doing this, um, not only to sell our own work, but to promote other pipe makers as well, since so there isn't a, a large Canadian presence outside of just a brick and mortar. And as far as I was talking before about Burlington, Burlington is probably one of the better tobacconists and pipe shops that I even know of in Canada. So as far as the online scene, there was even less here. So we uh, kind of put our heads together and uh, decided we wanted to create something. So there's myself, Ian, and another friend of mine, Matt, who, uh, Matt's a pipe smoker as well. Not, he's interested in making pipes. He hasn't done a lot. I think he's made three or four pipes. So we'll get together in the shop and just kind of help each other out and work on work on a few pipes here and there. But So we decided we wanted to kind of get together, build a website, um, offer, offer pipes, mainly artisan stuff. Um, we're not really looking at the factory stuff, although we would like to offer the whole uh, kit and caboodle, if you will, I guess, like the low-end stuff up to the higher-end artisan stuff. So there's kind of a, a taste there for everyone because... Ideally, like, I'm drawn the most to artisan pipes, 
the high, higher grade stuff. But you, as a collector, you need to start somewhere. And it's one of those hobbies I feel it needs help to grow as well. A lot of pipe smokers, pipe smokers that are coming into it are like 30, late 20s, early 30s, right? So um, I think a big part of it is getting out there and growing the community as well. And that's just kind of what we want to do is help grow the community, um, have people have access to two different pipes and exposure. And then with the other side of that too is uh, we're slowly moving into pipe tooling and pipe supplies because the thing that I found is it, you can't get anything here. Like as far as uh, Steve Norris was Vermont Freehand, like Steve's great. He's helped us out immensely with getting things. But with uh, getting across the border and the shipping and things like that, it can just be a real nightmare. Um, so generally I would just order direct from the mills and from the suppliers myself. So I thought, hey, if I'm going to be or importing this stuff anyways and doing it, why not offer it to other people here? So for the longest time I was kind of reselling through uh, just word of mouth to people I knew around Edmonton and around Canada that were pipe makers. So it's just kind of, I guess, broadening it a little bit more. So now we have a, a full online presence so it can reach out to, to people, not only in Canada, but internationally and in the States. We've had kind of good reactions across the board. So we, I guess that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, but it's also offered a, a place, too, that we have, uh, we have True North Briar has a, a pipeline of its own. We call it the TNB Handcut. Uh, just two us briar hand cut and what that is is a pipe that uh, we're doing it's made by us it's 100 percent handmade it's not uh, a factory line pipe but what it is is we uh, do it in a batch so kind of production style like start with all your your blocks screw them all up lay them all out um, lay them all down shape them all kind of in an assembly line so it uh, allows us to kind of fast track the process to a certain degree um, give a hand cut pipe while still kind of you're not sacrificing anything along the way you're just able to fast track your process so that's one of the things that we're also doing through true north like the first pipe we did is a canadian obviously suiting from canada here we have done uh, in red and black and white so that's kind of like our, our flagship pipe if you will but we're kind of doing the limit releases uh once we do one we'll do uh like a dozen pipes or so two dozen pipes kind of whatever we come up with with the true north briar uh, canadian we did two dozen pipes and that was kind of our pipe we launched with in chicago and with our website and once that's all sold out i think we have a couple left here but once those are all sold out then each uh each few months or whatever we release another shape and then it allows us just to kind of offer a hand cut pipe at a lower price point where we're going for the, I guess you're taking talking American dollars, right on the 200, kind of top side, up to 200 dollars for for a hand cut pipe, and then below that we'll look for more of the the factory line stuff or like corn cobs, things like that, higher end stuff. We'll then kind of get you into the artisan things. So just kind of offering, I guess, everything for for everyone. Plus, it comes with a really cool looking flannel uh, flannel pipe sock with a uh, pipe smoking moose on it. Yes, it does. Yeah, it does. I, I really like our, our logo. Our, our designer did a great job with it, and uh, I, I think I, I do like the the, Cana the Canadian look with the, the flannel and everything. So it kind of screams Canadian, but it's uh, it's a great lightweight, uh, good good smoking pipe. So what I like about it is that you guys are Canadians that aren't running away from your heritage. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, I, I, I hate the overdone Canadian uh, making, I guess, making light of it. And the, the A and all that stuff gets a little tiresome sometimes. But, yeah, at the same time, it's you're Canadian. Why not represent it, right? Yeah, and I and the only thing I will say is that I went to, you know, been to Canada several times and asked for Canadian bacon for breakfast, and I got regular old American-looking bacon because apparently Canadian bacon as we know it is called ham up there. 
Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a slab of ham. That's what Canadian bacon is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so what else do you do in your free time besides uh, working a full-time job and a part-time job and running a website? Um, well, those consume a lot of my time, but I uh, also I shoot archery. Um, I hunt. I go to the gym a lot. I used to compete in judo, actually, and from there I kind of got bit by the, the the weightlifting bug, and I've just kind of kept up with that. So I have some friends that I, I train for uh, strongman, so I'm training for that for a competition coming up here at the end of the summer. But, but between that and, I guess, life, <laughs> um, my wife and I are avid, uh, I guess, motorcyclists, you'd say, too, so we do a lot of motorcycle trips. But although right now we're kind of stagnant on that, my wife is pregnant. We're due, due in October here, so that's kind of going to be some change. That's our, our first one, and we have a... Uh, couple dogs and whatnot so there's never a dull moment <laughs> uh tell your wife october 23rd would be a great day october is that your birthday or what yeah yep that's fine yeah no do october 1st so far so we'll see that could change uh plus or minus but well let's stretch it out a little bit uh <laughs> <laughs> I'll, yes. I'll tell her to hold off i'll, I'll see how that's received <laughs> yeah yeah just hold her upside down um so, and, and and since you're training for you're training for one of those strongman competition where like guys carry tractor tires up a hill for you know is that one of those competitions? Yeah, essentially yes. There's uh, it's a lot of different obscure lifts. I guess you might say it's not your your typical deadlift, bench, squat, like say what a powerlifting meet would have. It's uh, like you'll see like those big stones, like those big atlas stones. Um, they'll have sandbags, kegs, um, logs. Like just, so, there's medleys of different like shoulder pressing exercises. They'll have um, like tire flips. They'll have uh, like car deadlifts. Um, they'll have like semi semi pulls. So it's kind of all different kinds of I guess functional strength you would say. So it's it's full body um, full body strength stuff. So it's it's fun. I enjoy it. Like I I never did compete in any kind of uh, I guess bodybuilding or anything like that. I had uh, originally started just with judo, like I say, and going through that is, is important to have good conditioning and good strength. So um, when I moved to Edmonton, just between between uh, injuries with judo and just the time constraint, I just kind of had to narrow down what my hobbies were. And for judo, it was just taking a lot of time and a lot of training. So I, I preferred the weightlifting aspect just because I could kind of – it's a solo sport. I could uh, – come and go as I please and kind of make my own time. And it, it didn't give me the injuries that I had with judo. So I just uh, continued just to lift for the joy of uh, going to the gym and just the, the energy it gave me. And I just like to round my day off with, with going and, and doing weight training. And through that, I met a group. The gym I go through is a very competitive gym. Um, it's kind of like one of those old school uh, metal plate. Uh, it's not a fitness club. It's like a chalk flying through the air kind of gym. <laughs> so I... Uh, Got into that with uh, a crowd of guys that are, there's a lot of bodybuilders there and a lot of strong men and uh, powerlifters and things like that. And I, to me, I, I don't, like, I'm not, I, I don't want to be on a stage and people, like, getting all inflated and flexing and stuff. It, it's it's to, for people's own enjoyment, sure, but it just wasn't me. And then with these guys, I found that I really like lifting heavy things, like that. So uh, I kind of fell in with that crowd, and I've just been training for the, the strong man thing ever since. And it just, I enjoy it. I find a lot of fun with it, so. Yeah, I, I've seen some of those on TV, and the logs you're talking about look like telephone poles to me. Yeah, those guys are crazy. Like, uh, but that's professional level. I don't even come close to that. But uh, yeah, 
it's it's pretty interesting some of the stuff some of those guys can do it's really phenomenal actually what the human body can condition itself to do well all i can say is um wow and <laughs> yeah we'll uh wrap this up with the fast five final questions no right answer no wrong answer just whatever comes to your mind are you ready i am yeah what is your favorite pipe I'd say my favorite pipe currently, I have a selection of shop pipes that I, I uh, go through, and some of those could be considered my favorite, but they're, for me, a lot of things are tied to, uh, I guess, where they came from, what they mean to me, it's just that whole meaning behind them. And I'd say, so given that, one of my favorite right now is a Dirk Heinemann pipe. I did a pipe trade with Dirk um, about a year ago, I guess, and then just getting to meet Dirk like through the Chicago Pipe Show in person and stuff and kind of growing a friendship there. Every time I smoke that pipe now, I kind of, it brings back more than just the smoking pipe itself. So I'd have to say uh, the, a, a Rhodesian uh, Dirk Heinemann pipe I have is probably my favorite pipe. And what's your favorite tobacco? Uh, tobacco is one of those ones for me. It, it, I feel like I'm always chasing my tail to find my favorite blend, but I'd say currently uh, Old Dog is probably, probably one of my favorite blends right now. Is that one of the uh, Ashton blends? Uh, it's a McClellan blend, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. What uh, is... I, I call it kind of mild English, but... And what is your favorite drink? Um, I'd have to, I'd have to go with port. I'm a, I'm a port fan. I think that may have been the first time anybody's ever mentioned port. So good. Yeah, I, I love it, especially with a pipe. It's, it's great. I, I do like scotch a lot, but my problem is when I'm having scotch with a pipe, it's, it, you really have to be careful what you're pairing with one another because it's very easy to overpower one or, one or the other or just wash your palate away. So I find port pairs fairly, or coffee. Coffee or port are probably my two go-tos if I'm going to choose something with a pipe. When it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? I'd have to lean towards a movie. I know when I'm in the shop, I pretty much only listen to music and uh, podcasts and audiobooks, but that's that's work time, not so much relax time. So I'd go with the movies. And the final question: Any particularly favorite pipe smoking related memory? Um, good question. I'd say probably I have a lot of them. Um, just a lot of the times meeting people in person through the community that you you've talked to for years and actually getting to sit down and smoke a pipe with them. That's kind of a surreal, cool feeling. But if I had to say the best one, uh, my wife and I went on a vacation. We took a month off and went to the UK and kind of went through England and Scotland and whatnot. And I went to uh, a local pipe-making shop there, I guess. Uh, Blakemer Briars is, is the shop. And uh, just got to meet him, and I bought a, a, a very low-priced pipe from him. His, his, his pipes are all pretty modestly priced. But I bought one from him, and then... When we were in the, I guess, the Scottish Highlands, just kind of in the beautiful countryside they have there, just kind of sitting around smoking with my wife and visiting about, like, our takeaways from the day and our vacation. That was probably the highlight for me as far as smoking pipe experiences. That sounds beautiful. Uh, check out the yeah, website. Yeah, it, it was awesome. Yeah. Check out the website. It's truenorthbriars.com. There's a whole bunch of other pipe makers on there. A lot of stuff to look around, and they'll uh, they'll ship even down here to the uh, to this little country to the south. So uh, make sure and check them out. Cody, thank you very much. No problem. Thank you for taking the time and having a little chat here. 
Yeah, and uh, let us know when you're in that strongman competition. We'll put a link to it so that we can uh, so that we can show it uh, show a pipe smoking strongman in the future. <laughs> Will do. We'll be back in just a minute. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. If you're looking for quality... If you're looking for a variety, and if you're looking for someone with a reputation for nothing but the best, you're looking for CupOfJoes.com. CupOfJoes.com has hundreds of pipes to choose from and thousands of different pipe tobaccos. CupOfJoes.com is also your one-stop shop for Peterson Pipes, their exclusive line of Peterson Kelly Pipes. Check out their remodeled website at CupOfJoes.com, and be sure to like them on Facebook, CupOfJoes.com. Quality products at extraordinary prices. This is Internet Radio. And we are back. Hey, I wonder if the uh, strongman competition will give Cody extra points if he's smoking a pipe while he's rolling one of those big giant stones. Um, anyway, all right, so tonight, instead of music, we have a, uh, we have a, a recorded interview of Bertrand Russell. And Rick Newcomb wrote me and said... Hi, Brian. I told the story in my first book about how pipe smoking saved Bertrand Russell's life, but I just found this clip on YouTube, and it is much more interesting in his own words. Uh, he says, I smoke the pipe all day long except for when I'm eating or sleeping. He lived to age 97. This is a, uh, uh, it's a face-to-face interview on the BBC in 1959, and what you're about to hear is a uh, introduction of it from a host, and then setting the stage for it. And then I'll cut out the other uh, 22 minutes of it and get right to the part where he talks about pipe smoking. So here's Bertrand Russell. In 1959, John Freeman's guest on Face to Face was the outstanding mathematician and philosopher Bertrand Russell, then within two months of his 87th birthday. But far from being a frail old gentleman, he appeared before the camera as spry, mischievous and articulate as the public had ever known him throughout a long career as a campaigner in various causes at odds with the establishment. But it was from the establishment he came, grandson of two lords, one of them Lord John Russell, the Liberal Prime Minister. He went to Cambridge in 1890 where he wrote The Principles of Mathematics and later his great work Principia Mathematica. His academic work as one of the greatest philosophers of his day continued at Cambridge until the First World War, when his vigorous campaigning as a pacifist got him expelled from Trinity. But he continued as a writer, his history of Western philosophy published in 1945 gaining him a more popular acceptance and lasting financial security. Russell, a late Victorian, was an early crusader for free love, in revolt against the humbug and hypocrisy of much of Edwardian life, a freedom exemplified unashamedly in his own private life. After teaching in America, he returned to Britain in triumph after World War II, was given the Order of Merit in 1949, and won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1950. From the 50s onwards, his main concern was the threat of nuclear annihilation. 
He was the first president of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament at the time of the face-to-face -face interview. And two years later, still battling against authority, he was arrested at an anti-nuclear sit-in in Parliament Square and sentenced to seven days in jail. He was 89 years old. His face-to-face -face interview reveals the qualities that sustained his reputation for decades. Lucidity of mind, transparent honesty, and an endearing sense of fun. Of the sort of conventional self-indulgences or vices like drink and tobacco and so on, which is your favourite one? Oh, tobacco. I smoke a pipe all day long except when I'm eating or sleeping. Hasn't that shortened your life? Well, they used to say it would when I first took to it, but... Uh, I took to it some 70 years ago, so it doesn't seem to have had a very great effect so far. In fact, uh, you know, on one occasion it saved my life. I was uh, in uh, an airplane, and uh, a man was getting a seat for me, and I said, get me a seat in the smoking part, so if I can't smoke, I should die. And sure enough, there was an accident, a bad accident, and all the people in the non-smoking part of the plane were drowned. And uh, the people in the smoking part jumped into the Norwegian fjord where we landed and were, were saved. So that I owe my life to smoking. Did you have to swim to save your life? Oh yes, we all had to. And did you think great thoughts about death and survival when you were actually swimming? No, I was strung up by a journalist in Copenhagen. And he said, uh, what did you think while you were swimming in the fjord? So I said, I thought the water was cold. And he said, did you not think about mysticism and logic? And I said, no, and rang off. Did all this happen a great many years ago? Not a great many years ago. I think it was about 1949, as far as I can remember. When you were in your late 70s? Yes. So there you have in his own words, uh, Bertrand Russell, free lover and pipe smoker. Um, I thought it kind of interesting that the uh, interviewer asked him if he thought that pipe smoking had uh, shortened his life. And at that point, he was 87 and still alive. So how would he know? I mean, if anything, maybe all that free love shortened his life. Check your mailbox, you moron! Anyway, if you'd like to see the full Bertrand Russell interview, it's on YouTube. And just uh, search Bertrand Russell face-to-face -face interview 1959 all right going back to last week's show with uh sparky dino writes wow i was completely blown away by tonight's show sparky harris's story is an amazing one and the conversation was just outstanding the mini collection you spoke of in pipe parts is very similar to mine one or a few of those wonderful english oldies including a pre-trans barling pot uh, the music selection was tremendously powerful. Galen Lee's song and her awesome story of triumph over disability is truly inspiring. This show of people making the absolute best of the cards they were dealt should be required listening for that person banned from the forum. Yeah. Uh, but then again, it might be as fruitful as explaining Django Reinhardt's music to a koala. Thanks for a most engaging and meaningful show, Dino. You are welcome. Uh, New Broom says, I was enthralled in listening to Sparky, his story about getting zapped and thought, oh, maybe that's why they call him Sparky. Then as the conversation ensued, I thought, oh boy, I can't wait to hear Sparky's answer to the Fast Five. Uh, what's your favorite pipe memory? Mine? 
Oh, I've got pipes? Yeah. Um, I'll give you a secret, a little secret there. Um, I gave Scott all the questions in advance. Uh, Scott So writes, Brian, your interview with Scott Harris was not only entertaining and educating, uh, but man, what a fascinating and inspiring story. I've followed him on social media for years, always impressed by his creations, and now after hearing this interview, am even more impressed. What really struck me was not once did he express any regret or pity, but instead had a, held a zeal for pipe carving and truly living one day at a time. Also thought highly of him for protecting his weekends as family time. Seems to have his priorities straight as well. Well done, Scott. Thank you. Uh, last, uh, Casey Ghostwrites. A really fine show. I especially like the pipe parts segment on the old standards of our industry, Dunhill, Barling, Kamoy, are the gold standards of our hobby. Uh, granted, their best day has long passed, but their old wood pipes are really something. Your interview with Scott Harris was highly entertaining. He is a very pleasant person. Considering his backstory, it's amazing that he is alive. It's interesting the compensation he's made... Uh, lost myself he has made to live a normal life his pipes do have an original flair as for people getting banned from the forum some folks just don't get it it is so easy to disagree with someone without resorting to belligerence i was on one forum where you could just easily muzzle someone by muting them if you don't see their posts you don't get mad some people's opinions are just not worth hearing mine on the other hand i'm the leading expert of my opinion uh, and one last note from Rick Newcomb. Uh, Rick says that uh, he's uh, been back in contact with Ken Barnes, and Ken wanted to clear up a few things. Uh, Rick writes, It's amazing how nearly all of us, including me, mispronounce Sheraton. It should be like Churchill, not Sheraton Hotel chain. It should be Cheriton. Well, that going to take a while to get used to but i'm sure i will um and then rick also says the reason so many of the upshawls made in the first decade of the company's existence from 1978 to 1988 had such fantastic straight grain was because ken barnes can read briar as well as anyone who has ever lived all right there you go mailbag hey Send all emails, anything you want to send me, to brian at pipesmagazine.com. And in just a minute, rant time. I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. Since 1990, Cornell & Deal has been producing high-quality pipe tobacco expertly blended by hand using time-honored methods, unique recipes, and no small amount of innovation. One example of such innovation is our bestseller, Autumn Evening. We start with whole leaf red Virginia and strip the stems by hand. The tobacco is then cut into ribbons and cooked for two days according to our unique recipe to create our special red Virginia Cavendish. Then we infuse the tobacco while it's still hot with our secret flavoring to achieve the sublime sweetness, deep flavor, and delightful aroma that makes Autumn Evening so well-loved by our loyal customers and everyone around them as they enjoy this very special blend. Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. It's a labor of love. 
Contact your local or online retailer for information. FDA update for you. I got nothing to say. Why do I have nothing to say? Because I'm sensible and calm enough and uh, smart enough to know that if I don't know it for a fact, I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say anything to you, the listeners, or anybody else that I happen to talk to about the FDA until I know absolutely for sure. Unlike some other, oh, I don't know, social media groups and one in particular trade association who spells their name or uses the initials IPCPR. Stop saying stuff unless you know exactly what you're talking about. Stop, in the case of the IPCPR, stop posting stuff just to incite a riot or just to up your own membership. And if you're going to do that at the same time, stop posting stuff that's written terribly, especially on Facebook. I mean, really. The IPCPR had the nerve to post a, uh, a warning about pipes uh, going away or something like that on their Facebook page, but didn't email it out to all their regular members. Why? Because it was probably so poorly written they were afraid to put it out there. But please... The only time you'll ever hear me say anything regarding the FDA or anything of any serious rumor type nature is if I know 100% for sure that it's not a rumor, I'm not just doing it just to incite riots. I'm not going to just speculate or push your buttons to amp you up. I will tell you that now is the time. If you haven't written your handwritten letter to your senator, your congressman, your members of the state rep- uh, the state that you live in, now's the time to write them and see if we can't get this thing stopped. There are a couple of lawsuits coming up, so hopefully they'll help. All right, there's your FDA update and a rant all tied into one. Going to Kansas City, I'll be there in uh, seven, nine, uh, ten days. Yeah. Kansas City Pipe Show coming up in 10 days. Hope to see you all there. Father's Day weekend this weekend. Hope you all get a chance to uh, sit around with uh, with your loved ones. Hopefully, uh, if you are a father, you get uh, treated well. Or if you have a father, treat them well. Either way. Uh, maybe you get a chance to sit down with a pipe. Anyway, uh, thank you all for tuning in. Thank you to Cody for joining me. And until next time. About the clouds when we're together. Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy trails to you.
pipe was so long he had to get a really long pipe bag. I mean, what else did you think I was going to say? <laughs>